open to the book of Luke, Luke and chapter 24. There is a lavender colored sheet. You should have gotten on the way in. You can uh, pull that out and follow along uh, in the sermon if you would like to. Take some notes if you'd like also. Luke chapter 24. Just to recap the situation as it's unfolded over the week of Jesus' passion. In Luke 19 and verses 28 to 40, Jesus has entered Jerusalem, the king riding on a donkey. And thus fulfilling Isaiah 62:11 and Zechariah 9 and verse 9. And all the people are singing and they're waving palm branches and putting robes on the ground as Jesus entered. And they're singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Fulfilling Psalm 118 and verse 26. In Luke 19, Jesus clears the temple of those buying and selling. And in Luke 20 and verse 21, Jesus is tested and questioned by his opponents. First about his authority and then about the truth and the reality of the resurrection. And then Jesus teaches them, sometimes with parables and sometimes not. He tells the parable of the vine grower, describing the Jews and their, their leaders and their rejection of him. He teaches about whether taxes should be paid to Caesar or not, and the answer, of course, is yes. He teaches about Christ as the son of David, about real sacrificial giving as he watches an elderly widow put her two last copper coins into the collection. He teaches them about his own second coming. And then in Luke chapter 22, they prepare the Passover meal for Jesus and the twelve. And while they're doing that, Judas Judas is agreeing to portray Jesus for uh, 30 pieces of silver. And then at the table, the twelve are arguing back and forth about who will be the greatest. And sometime in that meal, Jesus rises from the supper table. He quietly slips to the corner of the room. He removes his outer robe. He fills a bowl with water, wraps his waist with a towel, and he begins to wash his disputing disciples' feet. If ever there was a poignant scene in the Gospels, that's one. The King of Glory kneeling outside that light of the gathering around the table and quietly washing their feet. Judas leaves shortly afterward and Jesus and the eleven go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays those three amazing prayers of submission to God his Father. My Father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus submits to his Father's will. Judas arrives, leading a crowd, and identifies Jesus with a kiss. Again, a tremendously poignant scene in the whole gospel story. Betrayed with a kiss. The remaining 11 disciples flee away into the night and Jesus is arrested. He's taken and tried by the Sanhedrin. He's tried by Pilate and Herod. He is acquitted and then condemned by Pilate. Injustice there. He's scourged by the Romans. He's led away to a hill of Calvary or Golgotha. And there Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is crucified by wicked men. 
He'd been abandoned by his disciples. He was betrayed by one and denied by the other. The religious political leaders rejected and delivered him to the Romans. His family, back in Mark chapter 3, thought he'd lost his senses. He was hated by those who should have protected him. He was rejected by the world. And in the depths of his agony, he was forsaken by his father for a time on the cross. And so Jesus died. The humiliating, shameful death of a cross. His body was claimed by secret disciples, Nicodemus and Joseph. He was buried in Joseph's borrowed tomb. And Pilate places a guard on the tomb and seals it with a Roman seal. And the eleven sort of slink back into Jerusalem under the cover of darkness. Except for Judas who went out and hanged himself. Cursed as he hung on a tree. And so Luke 24 begins. And these are the words of the living and true God in Luke 24, beginning at verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only and he went away to his own home, marveling at what had happened. Be told, sorry, verse 13, and behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they, still, they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that he had also seen a vision, sorry, that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was still speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and ran, returned, sorry, returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. Thus he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And we trust that God would add blessing to the reading of his word. So what is Luke talking about? He's talking about Jesus' resurrection revealed in essentially three scenes. First, to the women at the tomb. Second, to the two disciples on the road. And thirdly, to 11 skeptic disciples in the upper room. Luke's account of these three scenes all have two common elements. First, each group was moved from discouraged at the beginning to rejoicing at the end. And second, each group had to be reminded of Jesus' words in the Old Testament and the New Testament as part of his revelation of his resurrection. Why is that? Because a reminder of truth is what encourages the discouraged. It's a reminder of truth that restores hope to the hopeless. It's the realization of God's past promises being kept that give us the confidence and the hope for the future promises still to be kept. It's knowing God's truth that gives us understanding and clarity and peace about our circumstances. It's our receiving the gospel truth that brings new life and hope and joy. It's the basis for our commission into the gospel world, calling the nations to submit to Jesus as Lord and King. So first we see the women at the tomb. 
They arrive at the tomb. They're saddened by the death of their master, their friend, and their teacher. They've misunderstood Jesus' words regarding his own death and resurrection. They're expecting to find Jesus in the tomb where they left him. But instead, in verses 2 through 4, they're perplexed to discover his tomb is open and empty. Sudden loss, violent loss of their master and teacher and friend added to the reality that they now can no longer find or see even his body. And so Luke says they're perplexed. In verse 5, they become terrified at the sight of the angels who challenge and rebuke them for their presence at the grave. Why do you seek the living among the dead? And in verse 6, they're the first to hear the most critical news ever announced. He is not here. He is risen. The living do not dwell among the dead. He who was alive and was dead is alive forevermore. Why are you looking for him here? This is the wrong place to find Jesus. The announcement is the most critical piece of news and information that we must all face and deal with and respond to. And we're going to look at it in detail at the end of the service, the end of this message. But notice in verses 6 and 7, the women were reminded of the truth of Jesus' words. The angel says to them that the Son of Man must be delivered. Why? Why must he have been delivered? Because the Bible tells us that he was delivered by God's determined counsel in Acts chapter 2. Before the creation of the world, that must be fulfilled. And it was fulfilled. He was delivered to the Romans because the Jews cannot crucify. They cannot put to death. He was delivered to the Romans in a very unique way, in a very interesting set of circumstances, so that both Jew and Gentile are participating in the Savior's death. We all had a part to play because it was for our sin that he was delivered over. In verse 7, the Son of Man must be crucified. But why? He was crucified in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You read Psalm 22 and Isaiah 52 and 53 and other texts. And you'll see there all those promises made very clearly describing crucifixion before it was even invented. He was crucified to suffer the penalty for sin, which is death. He was crucified to display God's holiness and God's hatred of sin. He was crucified to display God's love for the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was crucified to satisfy God's justice against lawbreakers. He was crucified to display God's grace and mercy and kindness to you and I. And so he said that he must be crucified. In verse 7, the Son of Man must rise again. And again, we're compelled to ask, why? Why must he rise? Jesus must rise, for he has no sin of his own. So therefore, death has no claim on him. It can't keep him. Jesus must rise, for God, through the prophets, promised he would. And God always keeps his promises. Jesus must rise to display his perfect, sinless self and state. He must rise as justification for his own full obedience to God as the Son. 
Jesus must rise to display his power to both give life and take life. In John 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay my life down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father, and he obeyed all the way to the end. Jesus must rise of the assurance of God's appointment of him as the returning judge of both the living and the dead. Acts 17, 31 tells us that. And so these women were reminded of the great truth of Jesus' own words about his death and burial and resurrection. Again, it's a reminder of truth that encourages the discouraged, and they were. It's a reminder of truth that restores hope to the hopeless. It's a realization of God's past promises kept that gives us the confidence and the hope for future promises to be kept. It's knowing God's truth that gives us understanding and clarity and peace about our circumstances. Do you want to understand your circumstances? Look to the truth of the word of God. Through it, God will give you the wisdom and the grace to deal with and respond to them in a way that pleases him and brings peace to your own heart, even if those circumstances never change. It's the word of God that gives us the lens, the way in which to understand our situation and respond to it. In verse 9, they returned to the Jerusalem eager to report good news, but the disciples regarded their words as nonsense, all except Peter, who ran to the tomb to see. Secondly, we see the disciples on the road. It's one of those best-loved resurrection event stories. The poignant beauty of the disciples' teacher, Lord, and Savior quietly coming alongside them in their sadness. Jesus was talking to them and ministering to them for the hours that they walked along the road to Emmaus. And again, we see a pattern, a discouraged, sad beginning, but a joyful ending to the scene. Notice on the very same day they travel, that's the same day that this is all happening. Jesus draws near and asks them what they're discussing. They're prevented by God from seeing and recognizing who it is. And they stop and they stand still. There's almost disbelief in them as they ask the questions. How could anybody have been in Jerusalem in the last week and not know what's happening, what's going on? Then in verses 19 and 21, they tell him all the things happening. The things happening to Jesus, the Nazarene. He was a prophet, mighty in deed and word. He was mighty in God's sight and the people's sight. And we were hoping that he would redeem Israel. Some of the women have told us they went to the tomb and saw it empty, and some of the angels who told them he was alive. Some of the disciples also went to the tomb and saw it empty, but Jesus they did not see. Kind of like these two men standing there looking at Jesus, telling him all these things. Their focus is all on what they had seen and heard during Jesus' three years of ministry in Galilee and Judea. Their experiences can only be truly understood through the lens of the truth of Scripture given to centuries earlier to explain them. To quote Graham Goldsworthy, an Australian theologian, Jesus' words and deeds will interpret the Old Testament by showing us its goal and meaning. And the Old Testament will increase our understanding of the gospel by showing us what Christ has fulfilled. The truth of Scripture explains and clarifies and interprets the true meaning of all that we experience both then and now. 
So then Jesus asks them a question. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Jesus is making the point to them that what they had seen and expected was a distortion of what the true prophets had truly said. Their first century understanding of a Messiah was one who would come, who would rise up in military might and strength. He would drive the Romans out and he would reestablish the kingdom of Israel with himself ruling and reigning as its king, initiating the continuation of the Davidic line of kings. Their understanding or I should say their misunderstanding of Messiah's glory, was radically different and infinitely smaller than its reality in the person and work of Christ. And they disregarded the Old Testament teaching of Messiah's sufferings. So Jesus needed to make the point to them and to us that his suffering preceded his glory, a lesson that they needed to understand, and we also. It's as much as true, sorry, And as much as it's true for Jesus, it's true for them and for us. Suffering must precede glory. And so Jesus patiently opens the scriptures. And beginning with Moses in the law, he explains to them all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. It's unlikely that Jesus' explanation would have been a long string of proof texts. Rather, I'm inclined to think it would have been a careful weaving together of all the Old Testament teachings concerning God's holiness and God's righteousness and God's electing love and God's redeeming love for a rebellious people. It would have concluded the defiling and separating power of sin and the need for a satisfactory substitutionary sacrifice and God's provision of that in the Lamb of God who was slain for the world's sin. The person of the suffering servant of the Lord and the promised sufferings that he had endured, it was all there. And finally, I'm sure Jesus' explanation finished with the glory of the Messiah, triumphant over all his enemies and entering into his kingdom. Jesus would have woven multiple threads of truth together into a rich, beautiful tapestry with himself as a central glorious figure. These two disciples on the, lo- on the road would later recount how their own hearts had burned within them as they listened to Jesus' Old Testament explanation and exposition of his own life and sufferings and glory. Their sadness was being eroded away by his explanation of truth. Their desire and love for their Messiah was being rekindled. The truth of God received drives away discouragement. It forces out fear and brings peace and clarity and wisdom and understanding. This morning, I don't know all your circumstances. I don't know the difficulties you're facing. I don't know all the heartaches and troubles that you deal with on a daily basis. And one of the biggest problems with the the problems we have is we don't often know how to understand those problems. Why are they there? Why has God brought these things into our lives at this time? But I can tell you this. The scriptures, as you read them and understand them, will give you the lens, the, the framework, the categories to understand why you are where you are and why God is taking you through these particular things. Know your circumstances may not change. God may change them in his time and his purposes, but they will give you the way to understand and to respond to them in a way that pleases God. 
and brings glory to his name. In verse 28, when Jesus made as if to go further, they, they, as they go away into the village, you can almost see them sort of starting to part of company. And they urge him to stay with them. And so they go into the house. And the Bible says that they recline at the table. And then Jesus does what is totally culturally backward and awkward. He's not supposed to do this. It's the host's responsibility to offer thanksgiving to God and then to break the bread of the meal and distribute it. But instead, Jesus does it. He who has explained and expounded the Old Testament scriptures, breaking the bread of truth to them, now does the very same thing, breaking and sharing physical bread. And in that moment, God opens their spiritual eyes. And I wonder, as he stretched out his hands like this to hand him the bread, and they saw the nail scars, and the same moment, God opened their eyes, and they suddenly realize who he is. Can you imagine to walk and talk and listen to the greatest Bible teacher ever explaining all the things concerning himself would have been a rich, soul-satisfying experience. No wonder their hearts burned within them. But how much better to suddenly realize that the one who is talking is the subject and the content of all his explanation. He is the Christ that they had misunderstood. He is the Christ who had indeed redeemed his people. He is the one whom the Old Testament scriptures promised. He is the one who suffered and died for our sin. He has now risen from the dead. He possesses a glorified, immortal resurrection body. He is the Christ who is entering into his glory and he vanishes from their sight. How their minds must have just whirled striving to pull it all together, to understand all of that. Wonder and amazement and love has replaced their sadness and their misunderstanding. No doubt they didn't just get up and wash the dishes and go to bed. (laughs) I'm convinced that they literally jumped out of their seats. Table and stuff goes flying everywhere. They're grabbing sandals and stuff as they're stumbling through the door. And they book it back to Jerusalem as fast as they can get there. Joy has absolutely flooded their souls. They've heard him. They've talked to him. They know this is Jesus. He is risen. He is alive. And the news has to be shared. Just like the women at the tomb who arrived saddened and perplexed at the empty tomb, who had forgotten Jesus' words, who were reminded of his promises, and who returned to the disciples eager to tell the good news. So these disciples on the road, they began saddened and discouraged. They'd misunderstood Jesus' person and ministry. They were reminded of the Old Testament truths about Jesus. They'd received sight, both spiritual and physical, to recognize him, and they too returned to the disciples, eager to tell the good news. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I'm going to say it again. I'm going to keep saying it. It's a reminder of truth applied by the Holy Spirit that encourages the discouraged that gives hope to the hopeless, that rejoices the saddened hearts and brings the sinner to know the gospel of Christ and the Christ of the gospel. It's the realization of past promises kept that gives us confidence and hope for God's future promises to be kept. 
It's truth that transforms sinners into saints, the damned to the saved, and skeptics into believers. Which brings us lastly to the three, or the disciples, sorry, the, the 11 skeptic disciples in the room. Why am I calling them skeptics? That's a little harsh, don't you think? Well, because... In their first hearing of the good news, in verses 8 to 10, they regarded the words of the women as nonsense. To quote Leon Morris, these men were not poised on the brink of belief and needing only a shadow of an excuse before launching forth into a proclamation of the resurrection. They were utterly skeptical. Even when the women they knew so well told them of their experiences, they refused to believe. Close quote. They who knew and followed him the closest would need the greatest evidence to dispel their skepticism and rekindle their faith. The two disciples, one named Cleopas, arrived probably in the middle of the night or very early in the morning, and they immediately began reporting all that has happened. And before they can even finish their words, Jesus is standing there. I, I, you know, sometimes I just love to be a fly on the wall and watch these things happen. I know that would eliminate faith. I get all that. But to see that moment, can you imagine these guys are all standing around looking and these two guys are telling so excitedly and all of a sudden, he's standing right there. Jesus' immortal resurrection body is not hindered or bound by the limitations that plague us. He appears and vanishes and reappears as he so desires. But despite the words of the women and despite the words of the two disciples on the road, the disciples are still frightened. They believe they're seeing a ghost. So Jesus deals with their troubled and fearful hearts. He invites them to see my hands and my feet. He's pointing out to them the mark of the nails. Jesus invites him to touch him and recognize that he is flesh and bones and blood. His body is a real physical body, yet immortal, no longer subject to the aging, decaying effects of time. And what Luke records next, I just kind of shake my head. They still could not believe. This is verse 41. They still could not believe it for their joy and amazement. Incredible. They're so overjoyed, they, they can't believe it. And I think, how did that happen? Yet there, there they are. But beloved, look at the Lord Jesus' gracious, kind, and gentle way of dealing with their unbelief. He asked them for some things to eat, a piece of honeycomb and a piece of broiled fish. He eats breakfast for that before their eyes so they can see him consuming solid food. He is real. He's alive and he is risen. And then Jesus does with these skeptical disciples what the angel did with the women at the tomb and what he himself did with the disciples on the road. He reminds them of truth. He reminds them of his words while still with them, meaning, of course, during his earthly ministry. He said that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And Jesus uses the same threefold division of the Hebrew Bible as a way of saying that every part of the Old Testament is speaking of him. What things is Jesus referring to? The great truths of the gospel, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. 
Jesus then does, as he did for the two disciples at the table, he opens their minds to understand the scriptures and describes what all the scriptures teach. In verses 46 to 49, his words incorporate the whole of the Bible's teaching. Thus it is written, the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And you are my witnesses, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father, the Holy Spirit. Listen, beloved, the Bible is one book. The New Testament interprets and explains the Old Testament. The Old Testament increases our understanding of the gospel by showing what it is that Christ fulfills. Jesus commission, uh, sorry, commissions them to take the same truth of the scriptures, which he is the content and the subject, and proclaim it to all the nations, calling them and us to repent of sin and to believe the truth. Truth in which the resurrection is absolutely critical. If there is no resurrection, nothing else about Christ is true. Sobering fact. I read a, I'm not into blogs as such, but I I sort of got started just recently. Um, I read one blog that said, if Jesus wasn't raised, nothing really changes. And the writer just ripped that one, that theory apart. If Jesus is not alive, everything changes. The resurrection is the most critical news ever announced. It's critical. It's something all of us have to consider and make an understanding and a decision about. Consider for a second what the angels meant by he is risen. Perhaps it's easier to describe the resurrection in terms of what it is is not. Jesus' resurrection was not as an immaterial ghost that they all saw. We saw there in the text, he twice ate food that disciples touched him to see his living physicality. He wasn't a ghost. Jesus' resurrection was not a resuscitation. He did not simply faint on the cross only to revive in the tomb. Roman soldiers were highly trained and highly skilled at death and dying, making sure their opponents, their enemy, was dead. If they had allowed Jesus to escape from the tomb alive, they would have paid for it the same way, crucifixion or beheading. He was dead when they took him down. It was not a resuscitation. Jesus' resurrection was not a reincarnation, giving him a mortal body again, Christ's resurrection body was immortal, never to die again. And beloved, think of this. We will receive the same resurrection body at our resurrection. That's a hope. It it was a little bit of a hope when I was 35. When I got to 50, it got a lot more of a hope. And I'm thinking as I get older, it's going to get even better and bigger of a hope as my body starts to fall more and more and more apart. There's a hope, a great hope for us. Listen, Jesus' resurrection was not merely an entrance into nirvana, a loss of personality and absorption into the one or the all. Jesus is still a distinct individual, truly God and truly man. Jesus' resurrection was not a translation like Enoch and Elijah taken directly from earth to heaven, bypassing death. His resurrection was not a vision that all the witnesses miraculously and in some cases simultaneously experienced. Jesus' resurrection was not a myth or a legend. 
like those proverbial fish that got away stories. We tell it the first time and the fish is this big and the next time it's this big and the next time it's this big. The disciples didn't start off with wishful thinking and keep retelling the story until it sort of grew and enlarged into a myth and reality that Jesus rose again. No, he truly rose again. The truth is that Jesus' resurrection was as the physical, immortal human being, truly God and truly man. And the question is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Not just, oh, that's a great piece of fact to keep away in my head. Not just as a great idea to write down or something cool to embroider on a pillow and put it where it's prominent or put up as a plaque on the wall. Do you believe it here? Because belief in that changes everything. It will change your entire life, radically change it, if you truly believe. But let's just consider for a second if Jesus had not risen. Let's consider for a sec if the whole thing was a lie. Okay? Jesus' own words of prophecy are lies. He is a false prophet, and as such, he deserved to die, if it's not true. He's nothing more than a sinful, lying man like all the rest of us. If Jesus is not risen, then we have no forgiveness of sin. We are not reconciled to God. We are not God's adopted sons and daughters. We may as well close our Bibles, walk out the room, go buy a slab of beer, and get drunk. Because there's no hope if Jesus is not risen. If Jesus is not risen, our preaching is pointless. Our faith is futile. There's no hope of eternal life. And all the gospel preachers that have ever made that message known are liars and fools. If Jesus is not written, then how do we explain the news spreading for 2,000 plus years? The news of his resurrection was first proclaimed by the women and the apostles. So there's three possibilities for them. They're all deceived. Every one of them bought a lie somehow Multiple simultaneous hallucination or something like that. Or secondly, they're all dreamers creating a myth or a legend. Or thirdly, they're all deceivers. They all knew they were telling a lie from the very beginning. But beloved, think about this. Of those 12, all but one apostle died a violent death for a lie and a dream. And you know... We'll do a lot of things. We'll endure some things for the sake of a lie. Virtually nobody will endure a violent death for the sake of a lie. So then consider, what if Jesus is risen? What if it's true? If Jesus is risen, he is who he claimed to be. He is the son of the living God. He is truly God and truly man, alive forevermore. All Jesus' past prophecies were true, amen, and fulfilled. And Jesus' future, not yet fulfilled prophecies, absolutely will happen. If he is risen, Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. Neither our faith nor our preaching is in vain. We who believe are no longer dead in sins and trespasses. We who believe have real hope of our own resurrection and eternal life. The disciples and countless thousands who suffered and died for Christ did so for the truth, not a legend nor a lie. Listen. Listen, beloved, to the truth of Scripture. 
Jesus' resurrection is true. He is not here. He is risen. The resurrection is true. It has more historical evidence to prove that than thousands of other readily believed historical documents. Jesus' resurrection was documented by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, and Paul in the New Testament documents. And all those documents have been repeatedly and decisively established as true and fact. Jesus' resurrection was proved by his multiple appearances to his witnesses. The women who saw him at the tomb and touched him a little later on. Peter who saw him alone. The twelve apostles who saw and touched him and watched him to eat food. Paul the apostle saw him and the 500 brethren who saw him simultaneously. And it is virtually impossible that one first century man without any technology could simultaneously and sufficiently deceive 500 plus people to the extent that they're willing to die violent deaths for it. The only viable conclusion left on the basis of all the evidence is that he is not here because he has risen. He is truly alive. But at the end of the day, That fact, as great it is, it has to hit here for all of us. And the question again, do you believe it? We come here Sunday morning on Resurrection Sunday to celebrate and sing the praises and rejoice together. Maybe eat some hot cross buns and all that other great stuff to do with Easter. But you know what? Strip all that away. If you don't believe it here, you're going to hell. That's not a politically correct statement anymore, I know. But it's the biblical truth. Amen Amen indeed. But praise God, beloved, praise God, that our God loved us with so great of a love. He had mercy upon us that none of us deserved. He had grace toward us that Jesus came and he took our sin on himself. He who knew no sin was what? made to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, beloved, there is a great salvation, a great hope for us if we would believe and repent and turn to God and find forgiveness. Do you believe it? Has it changed your life? Brothers and sisters in Christ, I plead with you, Make the gospel known. Friend sitting here this morning that does not truly know the Lord Jesus Christ, I plead with you, look to the cross. Look to the empty tomb and believe. There's life, there's hope, there's joy, there's peace, and the best is yet to come. What a great Savior we have. Amen? Would you stand with me? We'll close in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, again we give thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Master, our Teacher, and the Friend of Sinners. Father, we thank You and we praise You that He was willing in absolute and perfect obedience 
to leave the heights of heaven, to come as a servant, to take on human flesh and blood, and to be obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Father, we thank you and we praise you that he is indeed this morning. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is alive and we have a hope because our Jesus lives. Father, we cry out to you on behalf of those who are standing right here in this room who themselves do not know what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that you would, like you did with the disciples, and so open their eyes to understand the truth. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of their heart to understand and know the truth of the gospel, to believe in Jesus and to be saved for all eternity. Father, we ask you these things and we give thanks again for our time in the word. And we do so in Jesus' precious name. Amen.